fresh out of the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are beginning our new miniseries, Unforgrettable, covering all the films written by Greta Gerwig. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Very excited to be taking the stairs with you today. Oh, very exciting. And Kate, Kate, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Fantastic. So today, this voice that you're hearing, we are honored to have a special guest. She's a writer, an improviser, and a comedian, perhaps best known to our audience for her Anna Kendrick fan podcast, Pitch Perfect Performance Every Single Time. Please welcome Kate Evans. Thank you. I just want to say thank you to you both. Thank you to Anna for everything she's done for the acting industry. Um, In case anyone was wondering, she has dead eyes. She has dead eyes and she can't act. Cut the tape. (laughs) Stop the count. I heard she was really good in this new show called The Teacher. Okay, sure. That's Kate Mara. Okay, well, moving on. (laughs) Here's the other thing about Anna Kendrick. By the way, new topic for today's uh, podcast. The other thing about Anna Kendrick is that you can see the director's notes to her playing in her brain as she's acting like um, in into the woods when she's Cinderella and she's singing whatever song she sings, you can see her being like, now I'm supposed to look sad. Now I'm supposed to look happy. Now I'm supposed to walk up and down the stairs. Like, it's like you, like she's not doing it of her own volition. She's being forced to, and you can tell. (laughs) That's how I feel about Kristen Stewart, who is an actress yeah. that I kind of like, but we watched, um, it's called Happiest Season. It's a romantic comedy. Anyway, in that, I'm like, I like watching Kristen Stewart act. You can tell that like at every moment she feels deeply uncomfortable. Like she's like, yeah. the thing I hate the most is being on camera. I hate <laughs> that there is a camera pointed at me. <laughs> I am like trying so hard to act as though I feel a certain way. Although I'm very self-conscious <laughs> about doing that. <laughs> That's how Anna Kendrick is, except you can also tell that she thinks she's doing a great job. No, you're right. Anna Kendrick is like, yes, and I belong here. <laughs> yeah, I, I have here. arrived. <laughs> yes. uh, so I love that we were talking about your previous experience with movies. But what about your previous experience with this Fair? movie? Oh, okay. <laughs> Hannah Takes the Stairs. The movie we were discussing today, <laughs> Hannah Takes the Stairs by Greta Gerwig. I have had no previous experience with this movie. Little previous experience with Greta Gerwig. Um, But I liked the things that I had seen of hers beforehand, mostly. What what were those? Movies that she's directed. So Little Women I loved Mm -hmm. and Lady Bird I loved. Mm -hmm. Frances Ha, I, I wasn't crazy about it, but like I get it. It's like people, like, it's like that thing where you watch a movie and you're like, I didn't really like that, but someone explains to you why they like it. And you're like, oh, I get it. Right on. I had never seen this film before. I'm not actually sure if I, I don't think I've seen any Mumblecore films before, although I have seen a lot of movies kind of inspired by them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, I, I will probably cut this part out, but just letting you guys know, we're the first people who have ever recorded a podcast about this movie. Dude, leave it in. Leave it in. Yeah. For the I book. want the fame, Wade. Yeah. That's what I had no one for this for. 
<laughs> like everyone else, when you search like Lady Bird or whatever, there are like hundreds of podcast episodes about that. But we are the first people to ever record a podcast about Hannah Takes the Stairs. Okay. So Hannah Takes the Stairs, the movie that we were talking about that no one else has ever talked about. Very exciting. Three sentence <laughs> summary of this film. It is about Hannah, a young woman who goes through two unpleasant breakups and one maybe marginally more pleasant getting together with someone by the end of it. Over the course of that, uh, Hannah expresses her feelings about a lot of the world. Hannah is played by Greta Gertwig, who also uh, co-wrote the film. She expresses a lot of her views about the world, about art, about theater, and what it can be. But the forward momentum of the plot is about her relationship with these three successive guys and kind of feels like it should have the rhythm of a joke, but doesn't really. Yeah, it's not at all like a three bears situation. Like, it's not like one guy is too nice and one guy is not nice enough and the third guy's right. It's just like three different unrelated relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That all take place in about uh, maybe 14 square feet and three days. Yeah. Oh, this was, as you said, directed by Joe Swanberg, who is a guy at the forefront of the mumblecore movement. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his third film mm-hmm. that he's directed after Kissing on the Mouth and LOL. Mm-hmm. LOL was kind of the one that people noticed. And then this was sort of like the breakthrough of it. It was written by him, Greta Gerwig. This is her first writing credit. Mm-hmm. And Kent Osborne, who plays Matt, the third boyfriend in the film. Oh, weird. The three of them got writing credits. There's also a lot of the film that's improvised, Mm -hmm. which is kind of part of the style of this genre, Mm -hmm. which is mumblecore. As you said, there's music by Kevin Boersdorf, who is mainly an actor in these type of films, but he also scored um, Swanberg's film before this, LOL, and his film that came out last year, which is called Build the Wall. Hmm. A very provocative title, seemingly unrelated whatsoever to any <laughs> any ideas you may have by hearing it. This film runs one hour and 23 minutes, which seems notable. <laughs> the fact that it's less than 90 minutes. Yes, it is less probably than this podcast will be. We can't talk about a movie longer than the movie was. <laughs> oh, we certainly can. Uh, <laughs> and this one, they were just like... It's an hour and 23, perfect length. Nothing we could cut, nothing nope. we could add. Yeah. <laughs> it was released August 22nd, 2007 by the company IFC Films. This movie had a budget of $60,000, which is the highest uh, budget that Swanberg had ever worked with until his like uh, major label film in 2013. So of all of sort of the immediate pre and post movies in this mumblecore movement, this was the highest budget by far. It had, I'm reading here, a box office of $23,000. That's oh. true. Uh, but this thing was not, it definitely didn't get a wide release. Okay. Which is where like you can go to whatever, your AMC anywhere in America and see it. I don't even think it had a limited release because it's not rated. Oh, okay. And movies can't get released if they're not rated. So I don't think it even like played at a bunch of indie theaters. I think it just played at festivals. Okay. Across the US. It does have this like release date, but I think that means like 
the IFC theater in New York showed it for two weeks. Right. Starting that day. Also, like the official movie website, which used to be a big thing for this movie, is still mm-hmm. around. And it has a section for like showings. So I think it was very much like uh, people would hear about this movie and then they would be like, hey, we're doing a festival in your town and you can come see it if you want to see it. Okay. You know? Yeah. And again, for context, the first X-Men movie, which was made in the year 2000, was made for a budget of $60 million. (laughs) And this was (laughs) $60,000. So that's just a little comparison of how much money it costs to make a movie. This movie was fairly well received. It got a 63 on Metacritic. I have here a selection from the New York Times review by Matt Zoller Seitz. He writes, For newcomers to DIY, the movie's snappy but unadventurous style, episodic structure, deadpan performances, and raggedy improvisational dialogue make it a less-than-ideal introduction. For devotees, Hannah will evoke melancholy feelings, and not just because the heroine finds bliss without seriously examining preconceptions. Mr. Bajowski is writing a movie for Paramount. Mr. Duplass and his brother and filmmaking partner are writing and directing features for Universal and Fox and have already sold a television series to NBC. Mr. Swanberg and Miss Greta have already finished a new movie and are so talented that they may not have to scrounge for financing the next one. In light of all this, Hannah Takes the Stairs plays like an incidental swan song, a signpost marking the point when Mumblecore became a nostalgic label rather than a present-tense cultural force. And its most acclaimed practitioners moved on to better things. Mr. Swanberg's third movie is a graduation photo in motion. DIY, class of 07. Where'd you find that? Pitchfork? I feel like that's really... I don't know. I haven't seen any of these other people in anything else, but I feel like that's very accurate as far as like the Greta Garwig thing. Yeah. yeah, so the overview of this whole scene is that it was like... And and we can talk about it more and how we feel about it as we go on. But it was like a group of guys who were all doing stuff together. Mm. So like everyone in this movie was also directing other movies. Wow. And they were all acting in each other's stuff. It was a collective of like 15 dudes who were like each putting out a movie a year that they directed and write it. And all of them were in each other's stuff. And this happened for like five or six years with some regularity. That's really cool. It's I I think Mumblecore is cooler to think about as like as an artist thinking about like an ideal situation to be creating in versus actually watching any of the movies of it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Cuz you're like, "Oh yeah, I would love to make movies with my friends and just like all of us hang out and be in each other's stuff and like do that all the time." But when you see the the product of it at least with the the cameras that were available for cheap back in 2006. Mhm. It's it's not pretty. Also, you just wish... I mean, I just feel like if we were going to all write stuff together, we would put a plot in it. But maybe that's because we're biased. Well, I think that's part of like the thing that they're pushing against. I mean, they're striving for realism. Mm-hmm. Um, but read your comment about being like ideal artistic situations. I have a quote here from Swanberg. Uh-huh. That's segue. He says, I'm not afraid to fail. Making a bad movie does not scare me. Every mean thing that could be written about me has already been written. I've already been poor for 10 years, and I've already made movies that nobody saw. Going back to that doesn't scare me. 
So it puts me in a playful, experimental point. What's the worst thing that could happen? That's really cool. I love that quote a lot more than the movie. Yeah, that fills my heart with joy to hear. I don't know. We all have like a theater background. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's maybe we just relate that to it. Obviously, a lot of the people here do too. But it feels like it, it feels much more like theater to me. Mm -hmm. Like the collective and the striving for realism and that they were each doing like one project a year. That's like a new original thing that all of them put out, you know? Mm -hmm. This is their waiting for Lefty. Um, I think it also resembled a play in the prop work, which we can talk about later. But oh, the huh. props in this movie were out of control. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, <laughs> the, the slinkies, the goggles, the like the little magnet she put in her mouth. I I was well, like, put them oh, down. I forgot. Put the props the down. They were like the director was like, eat the cereal as messy as you possibly can. Make it so distracting that we can't hear any of the dialogue. <laughs> so, Kate. Uh, you're a fan. You already know what's coming. Oh, yes. I've seen my buns, yeah. of course. Flop or bop? <laughs> Big flop for me. <laughs> Big flop. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right on. Right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you guys? Okay. Wait. Wait. Hannah takes the stairs. <laughs> flop or bop, baby? <laughs> Also a flop. Not a big flop for me, uh-huh. but a flop for sure. Okay. Emmett, flop or bop? Flop. <laughs> Not only would I never watch this movie again, I will never watch any Mumblecore ever again. <laughs> Emmett, well, first of all, we will next week. Oh. <laughs> Second it. of all, it might be a stretch to say that you even watched all of this movie. <laughs> No, I couldn't even handle it. I couldn't sit still. Okay, when we I... were like 30 minutes to the end, so about halfway through the movie, both you and Laura started walking around, getting snacks, going to the bathroom. <laughs> you were on your phone for the whole last 20 minutes. I couldn't just, be bothered. I was just researching what the hell Mumblecore was for the last 30 minutes, <laughs> trying to see if it held any deeper meaning, and it didn't. And they were like, oh, we're not even, we're not even a genre. It's not even, it's so obscure. It's not even a genre, whatever. That makes me feel a lot better about how I watched this movie. (laughs) How did you watch it? I wasn't going to share, but but I did. This movie was only 123 minutes and I had to watch it in three sections. Like, (laughs) like I I watched like 30 minutes of it, (laughs) like three different points over the past week. Oh I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm a bad guess, but I and I wasn't. I wasn't going to be honest about that, but I I'm going to be honest. Did That's... you split them evenly by boyfriend, or was it? <laughs> no, this is how I split them. I watched until Ali texted me, "Do you want to watch Married at First Sight?" And I said yes. <laughs> Stopped. <laughs> Watching takes the stairs. I watched Married at First Light for her, and then I forget what else made me stop and start. Yeah, it's pretty hard to get through, isn't it? It's so short, and it's so hard to get through. Besides the prop work, <laughs> yeah. What other issues do you find with this film that makes you think it is, of it as a flop? I didn't think anyone in this movie was likable in any way. Mm. I just was like, I don't. I could not, and I know this is a later question and we'll get to it. I could not figure out what Hannah wanted or why she was doing anything she was doing. Mm. I feel like no one was like communicating with each other at all in this movie. They were not, 
everyone was having like so many feelings and no one would say anything about them ever, which I guess, I guess that is probably part of Mumblecore. It's like this idea of like, we're not going to be too like plot heavy or introspective mm-hmm. or say something that will like cause a conflict or an inciting action or something. We're just going to like exist like it's a normal Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But do you think when you say they weren't communicating, do you mean that as characters or as actors or as both? Oh, that's a good question. She has the monologue about how she hates like the problem of modern writing is that characters don't communicate with yes. each other. Yeah. That? She uh, obliquely compares this movie to Shakespeare a couple of times. <laughs> yes, you're right, Wade. Yeah, that make, that that makes me this that makes this even more of a flop for me. That makes me wonder if that was like a hostile attack on this movie from inside it. <laughs> is what that feels like in that lens right. to me. They were like, let's not make this movie good. Let's make it bad and make fun of the movie that we made. I just, I feel like <laughs> the best parts of the movie are like the three monologues that Greta Gerwig has mm-hmm. about writing unrelated okay. to the movie. Was I feel like at least that was the most relatable thing she did to me because I remember being mm-hmm. like 22 or like just out of college or just in college even like and um, getting really into like a creative project and like, feeling like it's like the most important thing in the world. And they actually talk about that in the movie too. Um, her first boyfriend was saying that he like broke up with a girl that he was with for forever when he was like 13 to 15 or something because she wasn't a musician. He was, and it's that thing of when you're young, you're like, oh, I could never be with this person because they don't get my art. That's a little bit how some of her monologues felt to me is like not that exact problem, but she was so into it. And I remember like being that into mm-hmm my creative work and so that was the most relatable part of her character to me do you think that part of what's going on here is that her creativity is like she's she's in that mindset of where she's like trying to break like break out from these relationships with those people who are like less creative than her but she doesn't know that's what she's she's like not consciously aware she's not out on the other side of it enough to know that's what she's doing yet so she just like keeps bouncing from one to the other even though there's not much perceivable difference from outside, like between the three guys. I at least definitely think she does not like any of these guys. Yeah. Not even the third one. I'm like, they maybe have more in common and are getting along better, but I, do, I don't think she likes them at all. And maybe she doesn't know that she doesn't like them. Like how, how you said Emmett. But. Mm. Like a lot of those speeches, the, th- the monologues that she gives are like very reminiscent of things that people would like say to you at parties in art school. Yeah. You know, it'd be like the oh, yeah. conversations like that you'd have with somebody like and everybody would basically be reiterating some version of. Yeah, I wrote down this movie is like being trapped at a bad party. You can't leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which like a lot of the movie takes place at bad parties that the characters can't leave. Yeah. yeah. Why really? is she sweaty? She's so sweaty for like the first half of this movie. And then she stops being sweaty, but she's, she's still drinking at parties. She's just not in the exact same room. She was right. she's just not sweaty anymore. Maybe they just got an AC some point over the course of filming. <laughs> Her hair is like drenched the first half uh-huh. of the movie. <laughs> I have a theory that this entire movie was shot in one single room. And that's why like so much of it is zooms that they would just like redecorate a different corner of the room every single time to make it look like a different location. I guess. Okay. I guess we should probably just like 
describe the style of the movie yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah because yeah. it's it it's like it's not like a movie when you think of a movie. It's like a home video mm-hmm. with less thought for forward momentum. It looks like a YouTube video from two thousand four. <laughs> it does. like the level of filmmaking is less than your iPhone could have done at the time this movie was released. <laughs> So it's just like it looks insanely cheap and the style of filmmaking is that it's all like quick zooms on people's faces and then mm-hmm. it's like a whole scene where stuff is happening but you're just looking at one character's face the whole time mm-hmm. and you like can't see outside you can't see the other angles you can't see that it's all taking place in one room but it's also not like the stuff that's going on is affecting that character as you watch them either yeah right it's not like one of those cool shots where sometimes you know like some badass stuff is happening around this character but you're getting like what they feel about it and it's really moving yeah and they're really striving for realism which in this case means like long conversations sort of about nothing and a lot of nudity but the other thing is that this movie is like half scripted half improvised and i think that you can really feel them like not knowing what to say. Yes. They all look uncomfortable. Yeah. It's all uncomfortable. And it's like, I think like, Kate, do you get like more uncomfortable when you watch like bad improv because you do a lot of improv? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It almost wasn't realistic. The realistic improvised conversations they were having. I'm like, seriously, like no one just like plays with a slinky for five minutes with their coworker. Like, also, what the hell were they like? Like, the boss comes in towards the end and he's like, the network's gonna shut us out if we don't do some work. And it was like, a network is involved with this job. How, how are these people making any money? A network is involved, and all they do is just like drink at work. I am just really confused about what they do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Kate, as a woman in the workforce, yes. is your experience that you sit in one room with two men all day and they just flirt with you and nothing else happens ever? so a lot of this movie takes place to to set the scene for the listener a lot of this movie takes place in i guess an office that is shared by greta's character and her second and third boyfriend respectively (laughs) paul and matt we have nothing good to say about paul i I hate paul so much I actually think this movie would at least be like halfway good if Paul was better. Why would she ever date him? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not just trying to be mean, but I'm just like, this girl's like smart and hot and I don't know what she's doing. Greta Gerwig, have you have you walked like even around the block yes. that you live on, you're going to find five people who are more attractive than those three guys. I think that's her problem. I Yeah. <laughs> like She never she, leaves the house. She never leaves the house. She, she only dates the people that are put in front of her. And that makes her life even worse because then she has to keep hanging out with all of these people. <laughs> yeah. So you've got Paul, who we never see do anything, but we're told that Paul has a blog. And that his blog is being maybe compiled into a book that will be published. 
it's unclear if that's what he does at the job or not. We never see him do anything, but the characters constantly complain that he never has time for them and is too busy. But he's just sitting there doing nothing the entire movie. There's also a very weird subplot where he like gets calls from his agent or whatever. And the last time you ever see his characters, he gets like a call on his single Bluetooth headphone, which these are the things where they were like $350 for one headphone and you would buy them directly from Verizon. He like gets a call first thing in the morning and he goes into the bathroom and he's like, he's like, it's like I always say, I've just got to trust your judgment because I don't know the protocol. Yeah. And like that's it's never that's it. explained further. There's like this weird subplot that maybe his agent is taking advantage of him, but we have no idea. So then you've got Matt, who is writing a TV show. He's writing a TV show called Bush League, which is going to get George Bush out of office when it comes out. It's going to change the world in the minds of the American people. And we should mention that Matt is played by Pete Buttigieg's father in this film (laughs) and that uh, he and Greta Gerwig at the end of this movie, they had a sweet little baby and just 14 years later, that sweet little baby would be running for president. Yeah. You've got Matt who looks a lot like Pete Buttigieg. He's writing a TV show called Bush league. Bush makes an appearance earlier in the movie as well. And it cuts to, um, we keep cutting to the scene of some strange stoner looking dude, like tall gangly t-shirt jeans in a different part of the office with these like two young corporate women. That was the only part of the movie I liked. (laughs) Those are the best parts. It keeps getting to them and he's like giving them weird advice. (laughs) And it's never explained how this connects to the movie until the last scene. So I truly thought that this was cut from another movie. (laughs) They were like, well, this thing can't be 78 minutes. We've got to put something else in there. And then it's revealed at the end that he's the boss and that the network is coming for them. Incredible. I did literally write down that that was my favorite part of the movie, by the way. Emmett, can I can I read both of you something from the official site? Oh, please. This is the film's official synopsis, okay. which answers several questions I had that the movie does not. <laughs> Hannah, a recent college graduate, spends a brutally hot Chicago summer falling in and out of love as she struggles to find personal and pro- professional fulfillment through various relationships with friends and coworkers, she ri- she risks leaving destruction in her wake. She has a love triangle with Matt and Paul, two script writers who work with her while she is an intern at a production office during the summer. While coasting from relationship to relationship, Hannah attempts to find direction for her life. The um, official, the tagline of this movie is also, and this is going to make things difficult for us. When you don't know what you want, how do you know who you want? <laughs> Wait, let me roll that back again. When you don't know what you want, how do you know who you want? Yes. Is that really the tagline? Yes. That's incredible. That makes me rethink. I, this could be a bop. No, don't even joke about that, Emma. <laughs> With a tagline like that, anything's possible. <laughs> but yeah, it takes place in Chicago. 
which I thought it took place in New York for the entire film. I, I was trying to figure out the whole time where it took place. And she's interning at a production office, which is never made clear. Never made clear. That makes it make a little more sense, but it still doesn't make it coherent. But that was something we had to go to a website from 2007 to learn. Yeah. yeah. Like, not, that's not something the movie makes clear. Those are just basic facts of the movie. Okay. Wait, can we talk a little bit about more about the cultural context of why all of these things may be so in this film? We've mostly covered the bases. I think we're going to talk more about it next week because then we'll be covering what kind of happens through the end of it. Okay. The first Mumblecore movie is considered to be Funny Ha Ha, mm-hmm. which is directed by Andrew Bojowski, the uh-huh. actor who plays Paul in this. Oh, well. He's a very accomplished director in his own right. The first one comes out in 2002. The next one is Kissing on the Mouth, which is the first film by Joe Swanberg, the director of this film. That comes out the same year as The Puffy Chair, which is the first one that gets like critical attention, which is by the Duplass brothers, one of whom plays her first boyfriend in this. So again, they're all sort of connected. Okay. But this movie, I mean, this movie is five years into the movement and about five or six films into it too. Okay. But this is fairly early on. It's kind of all coming out of New York, coming out of this one scene, coming out of being shown at a lot of festivals like South by Southwest, mm-hmm. where they were just sort of making these movies for fun and taking them. It goes on to influence a lot of other things. There are also eventually some movies that like people have heard of, Drinking Buddies, The Overnight, and Jeff Who Lives at Home. Mm. Mm-hmm. Those are like the three maybe mm-hmm. that cross into the mainstream the most. Those mm-hmm. are at least three movies that I've heard of, one of which I've seen. And mm-hmm. those are kind of at the tail end of it, which is about 2013 is when this thing like officially dies. Hmm. Although it's in this like 07, 08 sort of time when it really like peaks and then and then goes down from there. Hmm. It feels very 0708 as a genre. Yeah, I think there's something pretty interesting. I used to be like really disparaging of this, but as recently I've been just like a little more interested in like the pre-recession mm. art that was being made. Hmm. Like all of this stuff from the late 90s and the early 1000s when they were just like nothing matters, there's no war there's no problems with the world. We're just like going to talk about whatever we want to talk about. But this was 2000, 2006. That's not all that stuff is true. I, that yeah, is like an interesting, going. that's an interesting time period to think about that. It's, uh... Yeah. I guess they are talking, they're trying to get Bush out of office in this. I, I can give you a little bit of context for Greta too, mm-hmm. which I think is important up front. Mm-hmm. Since um, she's the she's what our miniseries is about, not about a, a series, but about a person. Yeah, very exciting. Um, she was born in Sacramento, California. Mm. Her parents, uh, her mother was a nurse and her father was a banker. She has uh, an older brother and a younger sister. She's the only one who's done anything related to show business related at all to like any sort of public life. Uh, she was raised a Unitarian Universalist, which I thought was interesting. Kate, can you describe for the audience what that is? Sure. Um, no, I'm sorry. I have no idea what that is. Can I guess? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess someone who thinks that everything is just one thing. We're we're all one person. Um, we're just all parts on one being. Yeah, that's pretty similar. Really? Um, it's described here as a liberal religion. It's basically like a group of people who all have tons of different religious beliefs and like their agreement is to keep those all private at all costs. So it's like yeah. a group of people who like meet up in a place and keep sort of like the community aspect of organized religion and assume that everyone else is like has basic values about keeping the world good. Hmm. But like some of them are Christians, some of them are Buddhists, some of them are Mormons, some of them are atheists. Like there's no like united belief whatsoever other than like to respect each other's beliefs and not mm-hmm. talk and, about it. Yeah, they don't discuss it at all. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty dope. She attended St. Francis High School, which was an all-girls Catholic school, all of her life. She graduated that in 2002. She then moved to New York City and went to Barnard College. Um, She entered wanting to get a musical theater degree. She ended up graduating with an English degree, trying to be a playwright. She graduated in 2006. Her senior year of college, she was she played a minor role in Joe Swanberg's film before this, LOL, which was the first like film thing she had ever done. And then that makes the connection between he, her and Joe. When she graduated, she was trying to get into playwriting MFA programs because what she wanted to do with her life was become a playwright. Um, she was rejected from all of them. So instead, she began sort of this mumblecore, working in this mumblecore scene. She wrote this movie with Swanberg and was in it. Also, his next movie, Nights and Weekends, she also wrote and directed with him. Um, And this is kind of like what she did when her plans of becoming a playwright fell through. She was 24 years old. She graduated in 2006, and then she was 24 years old when she made this movie. And this is a quote from her. I was really depressed. I was 25 in 2008 and thinking this is supposed to be the best time of my life and I'm miserable, but it felt like acting was what was happening for me. So I went back to acting classes instead of writing. It's pretty wild that she's like almost exactly the same age that that we are right now when she was making this. I mean, I was thinking about that too. And that's something that I was like a little sympathetic to this movie. About. Yeah. Yeah. Because my thought was like, if we had been born 15 years earlier, don't you think that we would have a bad mumblecore movie? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should have some other sort of bad, some sort of movie. Like we, we should do that because yeah, we don't even have a movie. If they can, yeah, yeah we don't like, what can we say? We, we've got to, so we've got so, this podcast. That's true. Some, some grad school plans don't work out for us. And we start this podcast that, that is true. I did not directly the same results, but I did not get into MFA playwriting programs and then started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like like now it's very silly and like so sort of like <laughs> focused on the problems of like such a small group that you don't real don't really have many real problems, right? Yeah. But I also feel like like if we were in that time, it probably would feel revolutionary and it probably would be really artistically fulfilling and we would be like, this is real art. And God knows if we put, if we put any of stuff on stage, we would say it was art. How do both of you like think about the strive for realism 
as it's in this movie and also as we see it like depicted on the stage so often. Kate, would you like to take this question before I go off on it? <laughs> no, please. Okay. I saw you revving up, please. First off, I don't think this, I think Kate is exactly right. These conversations do not look like realistic conversations that you actually have. They're like much more meandery and pointless than that. Second off, I think that Mumblecore like where it bled into society, like I had never seen any of these movies, but I'd always heard of it references like, Oh, it's realer than real. Like it's the realist, you know, it's, it's like so realistic because I think that sometimes like the, the, there's a conflation between like good acting and realism and like realistic acting or like being naturalistic or whatever. I do think there's, I do think there's a difference there. You know, I think there's just been, a lot of acting where you're like that actor could go further. That actor could be more, you know, expressive. And it's like kind of this thing where we're like dampening things down to prove that it was serious as opposed to like ramping up all of the acting values to like, to prove that it's like intense and meaningful and serious. There are two different approaches, I guess, but I prefer something to be overacted than like whatever this is, you know? a lot of it reminded me of people I really know. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I know a lot of people who are like Hannah in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was watching like a day in the life of some of my friends. For sure. I don't think the style is like largely realistic. I think there are sections where it is, but then I think there are also sections where like, it just looks like the camera is on too long and they're really uncomfortable and they're trying to think (laughs) of anything they could say. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so easy to see what's improvised and what isn't in this movie. Yeah. I probably spent at least as much time thinking about, like, the circumstances of the real people making this movie (laughs) while I was watching it, as I did thinking about, like, the story it was presenting. For sure. Yeah, I definitely agree that I could very easily tell when they were improvising and when they weren't, and that the movie suffered when they were improvising or felt Mm -hmm. less realistic when they were. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess it was realistic in that I know people like this. I know that a lot of people live like these characters live and make choices Mm -hmm. like they made. But kind of to your point earlier, Emmett, about like realism in general, like I don't know that I'm that interested in something that's realistic Mm -hmm. just for the sake of being realistic. Like Mm -hmm. it's just like a little masturbatory to me that you're just like, look at how real I can be. Like, how is that benefiting the audience in any way? It's yeah. not like, I don't know. It's just like, what's the point of me watching this then? Like if I wanted uh, my real life, I would just like go live my life. There's nothing to like learn or gain from the story. It doesn't feel like crafted purposefully or like there was like, uh, it was like a carefully like written piece, yeah. like, you know? And, and so mm. that kind of like, I've just never really been into that. So what you were saying resonated with me. You know, it's interesting what you say about it. It's suffering the most when it's improvised and that when it's written, there's like a little bit stronger through line to it. And then mm-hmm. also, I think it's important to note that Greta Gerwig as a director is very much like by the script and doesn't allow for mm-hmm. a lot of line improvisation. And so that could become out of as being a reaction from like her early days doing right. these sorts of movies where she sees it like realism or like if you want realistic acting, maybe the better way to do that is to write something that's realistic. Not yeah. just like put yeah. cameras on people who are uncomfortable. You know? For sure. And yeah. who also like 
aren't I feel like if you're gonna put actors or cameras on actors and not give them the script, you have to at least give them objectives. Oh god. And these actors had no objectives because they don't know what they want. Like it literally says uh, the tagline is she doesn't know what she wants. Yeah. So what is she supposed to do when the camera is on her then? And that's why we get these shots of her just like rolling over three times in bed. Like, like we're just redoing the same action, (laughs) looking like a jerk (laughs) on the headlights. Okay. So we're kind of getting into it a little bit, but let's just get into it. Let's go down the cast. We talked about Greta Gerwig a little bit. How was her performance in this film? I think it was good. I think she's like definitely the best part of this movie. I think, again, the things that I liked the most were her speech about playwriting, which is obviously like comes from a very real place. And she has a couple moments that feel real. I like the moment where she's just like trying to cool off with her roommate friend um maybe just as like a very sweaty person but that felt like a very real like casual moment to me and i like her i think her scene with the final boyfriend um i've got all their names mixed up right now Matt is the final boyfriend yeah her scene with matt at the end i think is actually like really good where he's talking about antidepressants and she says i can't be careless with you anymore Mm -hmm. now that i know you have problems and i think like everything that happens in that scene is actually like really well crafted and beautiful so i think she has the best stuff of the movie i don't think it's like a fully realized performance i also felt like her strongest moments were both that conversation and then also when she's um she knows she needs to break up with her first boyfriend and can't and he kind of essentially breaks up with her because she can't break up with him. Because I think in both of those scenes, she does something that I relate to a lot, which is maybe why I like it, because uh, it just felt a little bit more accessible or tangible. But she knows she needs to say something, but doesn't know how to and doesn't mm. like want mm. to deal with the conflict. And so she just like, like, she like, she gets really hot or she starts to say it and then she stops saying it. And he, the guys have to ask her like eight times what she's thinking and feeling, which I feel like is any time I've ever had a negative feeling that someone could tell I have (laughs) to pull it out of me. Um, I just have in my notes, a little heart um, with an arrow through it and next to it written love for Greta new crush after her speech about Shakespeare. There's also a little shakes written in the heart. Because she has some speech about Shakespeare when she's sitting in a bathtub wearing the goggles. And it's very endearing. I think she does act like the uncomfortable, that like thing that you're talking about, that uncomfortable moment of like, I know I need to say something, but I can't. Mm -hmm. But I wish the script then gave them something to do from that moment. Like use that moment to catapult it into something else. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving right along on this list, we have Mark Duplass. That's uh, boyfriend number one. His name is Mike. You think the movie might kind of be about his decision to quit his job, and then it isn't. I think this guy is actually pretty good. The like stuff that felt the most like a real movie that mm-hmm. had like a tone yeah. was their first 20 minutes when they're together. That's fair. I feel like he's the only other person who has like close to the same level of acting chops that she does. Mm-hmm. 
And he also felt like a very specific sort of person that I do know in real life. Like a guy who is like several years older than his girlfriend is like always hanging out with these younger kids Mm -hmm. and quits his job and just like doing drugs, hanging out with these kids, quits his job and is going to like going to go on a soul searching mission. Like that feels like a very specific sort of person I know. I think he was definitely the best of the guys. And he also, I guess the script at least developed his character more than anyone else. He literally said like, I'm a nihilist. Like, this is what I believe. This is how I see the world. Like Mm -hmm. he was the only one that got like any kind of identifying belief system or worldview. I also feel like we knew he just really wanted to have fun and stay with this girl because that scene when they're um, at the beach and he knows she's going to break up with him. He says, like, I think I handle breakups really poorly, like even worse Mm. than most people. And it felt like he was kind of being manipulative or trying to make her feel bad about the fact that she wanted to break up with him. It it felt like one of the only lines in the whole movie that had a motivation behind it. I also couldn't believe when I think they're like fighting or something and he's trying to convince her that she likes him. I'm not exactly sure what's going on in the scene, but um, he says, like, I get it we have sex and I don't know your sister's names. I wrote that down too. <laughs> I was like, what the Because at first I was like, oh, maybe don't break up with him. But then I was like, all right, ditch this dude. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> My feelings about Mike were greatly improved by the second two thirds of the movie. <laughs> and yeah. that's all I have to say about him. Yeah. <laughs> Moving right along. Uh, it feels like, it felt to me like the movie was written up until like the scene where Paul comes into her house. Uh-huh. Like the first like 30 minutes seem like there is a narrative. Yes. Yes. That is pushing towards something and that is like carefully crafted. And then and then it becomes like a Paul wasteland for a while. Yeah. For what feels like an hour at least. And it makes no <laughs> sense. When she was like, do you want to come up and meet my roommate? I was like, what is about to happen in this she, movie? Is she really about to? Yeah. With Paul? There is a weird boss dynamic with Paul, who I realize is not her boss, but like the first time they start to like cuddle up, he's talking about how good she is at work and like her performance at work, how she's the thing that like makes him. And that was like so gross. Yeah. Okay, so we're already talking about him. It's Andrew Bajalski as Paul, boyfriend number two. We have nothing good to say about Paul. No. I don't have anything at all to say about Paul, honestly. Really, he's just kind of clammy and gross. Yeah, they really did him dirty with the one shot where the screen is like seventy-five percent his butt. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> in those in those two thousand seven <laughs> Levi Blue so jeans, baggy ass grandfather <laughs> jeans. <laughs> But just like when they were in that situation where they were like awkwardly cuddling at work and looking out the window. Oh, I hate it. While the other dude was working, I was like, this is what high school was like. Like, I remember being in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Moving right along. It's Kent Osborne, otherwise, AKA Pete Buttigieg's grandfather, uh, playing Matt, boyfriend number three. At one point in the movie, he was my favorite character when he did the hot dog body. And then from that point on, I hated him. Oh, um, I, I think by that point in the movie, I was just like where she when she got with him and he had a little more screen time. I was just so frustrated with the path this was taking. That is a little hard to engage with his character. For sure. 
I'm not sure if I gave him a fair shot. It definitely seems like she liked him the most, mm. but as far as his acting, yeah, I guess I don't have a ton to say about him. I'm not sure if it did seem like she liked him the most. I think it seems like they're the healthiest relationship. Okay, yeah, that's more accurate. Yeah, and that he is like the healthiest of the three dudes. Yes, yes. I like him. I think it's, yeah, I think his stuff is almost too little too late to register because yeah. he's been with so much of Paul. And there's also like a weird, there's a weird subplot where it seems like maybe him and the roommate are being set to hook up, even though like he kind of clearly likes Hannah but he's like coming over and they're trying to like set up him with Hannah's roommate mm. who is pretty, she was pretty compelling to me. She is like definitely like by far the worst improviser and like the least comfortable being on screen. But there was like some sort of compelling aspect to her character. Maybe just that she wasn't involved in the shenanigans that every other character was. <laughs> but she's really one where you're like, Oh, I know that person. And that other moment where she's like, this is getting weird. I don't want to like sit next to this guy. I'm just going to leave and like let you let you do what you want. You know? Oh, wait, I wanted to say about Ken Osborne. I also think he's played as a comic character in the beginning, like almost to the point of absurdity with like the hot dog body. <laughs> that is so weird. That's what broke you. You couldn't handle the hot dog body. I love After dog you body. see the hot dog body, you're like, I can't, re- I don't know if I can take you seriously in a film ever again. That's just that 2007 comedy, man. That was the funniest thing in the world. That's fair. That's fair. Now, Kate, it is time for us to introduce to you and to the listener a new segment. In this segment called Everyday Chalamet, we will review Timothy Chalamet's performance in this film. So, Kate, let me give you the great honor of being the first ever Everyday Chalamet reviewer and tell me what you thought of young Timothy in this film. Wow. Um, since he was so young in this film, because mm-hmm. remember it came out in 2007. Yeah. He was two years old. He was two years old. I think he did a pretty good job. We didn't see a lot of them and two-year-olds are famously loud. And <laughs> so I'm impressed that he was able to keep himself so under the radar and really respect the other actors. Um, This is Mumblecore after all. He couldn't be running around screaming. So I think I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that from this movie, his first film, everyone pegged him as a star and knew that, you know, this was really his industry. I I think he he had the best performance in the film. I think there's something interesting (laughs) that, um, that Greta Gerwig made this movie when she was 24 uh-huh. And then when Timothy Chalamet was 24, he made Little Women. Whoa. Wow. How old is he? Greta Gerwig. He's 25 right now. Okay. He was 12 years old when He's this movie 12 years old. <laughs> he also was not in this movie, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> I loved his performance in this film. <laughs> Every day, and it would never be too many days. Thank you. All right. On to our next segment. <laughs> Wade has no opinion on Timothy Chalamet. Wait, I thought you just gave your opinion on Timothy Chalamet. I did. Did you? Oh, Wait, do, it was, do, do it was just fact. There was no opinion in there. It was he's 12 years old. Do you have more opinions on Timothy Chalamet's performance in this film? I'm sorry, Evan. I'm afraid to say that much like every actor in this movie, I'm having trouble yes-anding your bit. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so we're going to move on to another new segment. Wow. Okay. 
Greta off without you. <laughs> uh, we are going to say which of the boyfriends in all of these movies we would date. Not which one is the best, not which one the main character t- should date, whatever. Just the one that we personally would mm-hmm. date. We think that there are boyfriends in all of these movies. There definitely are in the other two that we've seen and in this one. So on the table, we've got Mike, who is boyfriend number one. Mm-hmm. We've got Paul, who is boyfriend number two. Mm-hmm. And Matt, who is number mm-hmm. three. Can I answer the question two ways? Sure. Okay, so first, who would I date? Would being like realistically like I know myself and I know who I'm gonna date, and then also I'm gonna answer it like who would I like actually want to pick out of these three people? <laughs> who I know I would date is Mike. Um, mm. Yeah, the guy that's older than you who doesn't have a lot going on and stuff like that. I think who I would actually like to date and who I'm going to try to date more people like if I have to choose between these three, Matt. Yeah, he seemed like the most genuine of the three and the person who was actually the most interested in her, even though it's funny that, like, I think Matt is the one who tells her Paul is crazy about her. Paul is so clearly not crazy about her. And so I appreciate, I don't I don't know, I just think that, like, Matt is the one having actual conversations with her they talk about something important and they have some things in common. They're ha- they kind of have fun together a little bit in the tub. I don't think I saw her like genuinely having fun with Paul or Mike. That's so that's, that's who I would want myself to pick, but I know that I would probably pick Mike. I think that it would probably be Mike. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that he's the best choice, but I just feel like he would be the one who is most interesting. Mm-hmm. And the one who I would be like most attracted to, I don't think it would be a long or certainly not satisfying relationship, (laughs) but I do think like which of them would I, would I be most likely to date would be Mike Emmett. Who would you be Greta off without? I think I have to agree. It would be Mike as well. I feel like, archetypally relationship wise you want to be more in the the matt kind of relationship i guess i mean it doesn't still doesn't seem like it's bringing either party a lot of joy so maybe like a step above but in that category but mike is mike is honestly of those three actual people the one that you would probably i would probably end up dating he's just so broody yeah he just feels like he has something to contribute which neither of the other guys feel like that's true. Like Matt feels like he genuinely cares about you and is like genuinely listening to and processing everything you have to mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Where Mike feels like he's never once heard you speak. <laughs> but Mike feels like he has something to say, which neither of the other two feel like. Yeah. Emmett, I know that we're in segments, but if I can break us just for a moment. Yeah. We haven't actually talked at all yet about what this movie is like most remembered for today. Oh, okay. Looking through a letterboxd and Twitter and like whenever people talk about mm-hmm. the movie, which is all of the nudity yes. in it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, the film starts with a close up of Greta Gerwig's breasts in the shower. That's the first thing you see. There is a lot of nudity throughout the whole movie, mostly from her, but we also see all three of the boyfriends in like various states of shirtlessness and undress. And you do see great granddaddy Buddha Judge's yeah. member yeah. in this. Movie. Yeah, you see Matt 
fully naked at, as the last shot of the movie. And the thing that is notable here is that all of the nudity in the movie is purposely non-sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's all in situations of people like sleeping or breaking up or cooling off or showering. And there's only one sex scene in the movie, which is done fully clothed and like looking at people's faces. Mm-hmm. So there's like something interesting they're going after there. This is certainly a hallmark of realism on the stage too. Like, mm. It feels like whenever you hear that a play is like striving for realism, it means that you're going to see some full frontal nudity. I love, just a side note, I love that that's like considered a hyper-realistic play. Is that like, oh, when everyone breaks up naked, when you're breaking up, you want to be as physically vulnerable as possible as well. You want to make sure that you're naked while you're crying. The nudity... I don't think I had strong feelings about it. Because it is in the first shot, it's like, oh, hey, like this is going to be a movie where there's naked bodies on screen and it is not like going to be sexy at all. And like it establishes that that like, so early on that I don't think that like you just I just like kind of ignore it or not like ignore it, but like it becomes just like part of what's going on and isn't like salacious or whatever. But it's also just like not necessary. And so it it always made me think of like whenever I'd see it as I'd be like, oh, well, like, is the actor comfortable, especially in like an improv situation where you're naked is like a little that seems like a little more vulnerable than a lot of people are comfortable with being. Maybe I'm not like saying that they weren't, but the same like non-sexualized nudity was shown in a higher budget film. I wouldn't feel as weird about it. You know what I mean? because I wouldn't be worrying about the actors as much. Yeah. I, I at times had some of those thoughts, but she did write the movie too. So yeah, that's true. I just, that one part where the dude was like licking her arm and she wasn't wearing any, she wasn't wearing any clothes. And like, he was just like trying to kiss her like arm and like kiss her on the face. But he like was like licking her arm and she gets like really freaked out about it. And like, in that moment, like you, I couldn't tell the difference between like character freaking out and and like actress freaking out and being like, no, dude, like that's too far. Don't. It feels like you may be just like brushing up against the fact that there's not a lot of acting in this movie. That's that could be true. So when there is acting, you're kind of like, wait, are you okay? Like, are you really hurt? Because you certainly could not be acting like you're sad in a breakup scene. So, like, what was happening that was making you really sad in real life? <laughs> okay, okay, touche, touche. Oh, she's pretty good in this. I think you see a lot of the foundations. I mean, especially of her writing, mm-hmm. which is like the thing that we are analyzing in this series. Mm-hmm. I think again, more so, kind of in like the scenes that she's improving monologues in. But again, I think I think that scene with her and the last boyfriend is really good mm-hmm. and really well written. So we're almost we're, we're kind of already in this again, once again. Segue right into it. Protagonists and what do they want? So I'm gonna say Hannah. Okay, bold. I don't, yeah, bold, bold. So bold. Too bold, one might say. Um, I don't. I I don't know. Oh God. I mean, I was asking myself this question. But anyway, I don't know. I mean, I think if I had, to, if I'm gonna actually like do like yeah. do the exercise and yeah. make myself think, I would say <laughs> that. Sorry, I'm trying to put in some effort. Um, I think she wants like more meaning or um, purpose in her life. Mm. Whether it's like, mm. I, I think that might be like why she she. It seems like she chases a lot of highs. 
when she first started talking to Paul, I felt like he was like complimenting her and I could just see her being like, you think so? Like really? And just kind mm-hmm. of like fishing for it a little more. I mean, it's the only thing that I could possibly justify as to why she would like want to date really any of these three guys. Um, but then as soon as she does start dating them and it's really not exciting or providing any kind of meaning or purpose, I feel like that's when she's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So maybe what she wants is to figure out what she wants. Um, or maybe it's to like find more purpose and, and meaning in her life, both through writing and dating. Um, yeah, I think it's Hannah. I think she mostly wants to take the stairs. <laughs> Never, they never, never. anything about the, never stairs. Not a thing about the stairs. Not a thing about the stairs. No, it it has to do, and we'll get into this a little bit later. But it has to do with the rhythm of how mumblecore titles work. Ugh. It needed a thing. It couldn't just be Hannah has boyfriends. I think it's a genuinely good title. Like I love. The yeah. Title. Oh, it's a great title. Just you, you don't even see the stairs, so it makes it tough. It's yeah, because she's living in an eight-story walk-up. When you um, mentioned that, I was reminded of the stuff that I related to the most in the movie and thought was like most powerful, which is the speech she gives about crushes, mm-hmm. where she's like, "It's like the most exciting, most thrilling thing when you have a crush, and then like mm-hmm. when you act on it, it becomes something real and less fun and yeah. problematic, and you just like lose that, and people yeah. can get hurt." So I think she, I don't know. I feel like she's in a very real place that I have been in at points of my life that I know a lot of people who are in of like, just sort of like chasing the thrills and like not sort of dealing with whatever the larger problem is. Yeah. It sounds like if we, if we can extrapolate that it's possible that that's how Greta felt in real life yeah. making this movie too, that she was just sort of like, this is a fun, successful thing. So I'll do it even though it's not what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Just like devote myself to this other thing. That's not really what I want to be doing. So what is, what does she want? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe like some sense of stability or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of interesting that like the happy moment, the movie or that she like makes a milestone out of like peeing while the guy's in the shower, mm-hmm. that it's like uh, an element of stability that they've gotten to. Yeah. And then it ends with them, like her and the last boyfriend naked in the bed playing, or excuse me, naked in the bathtub playing trumpet together, mm-hmm. which also feels like a very, just sort of like a quiet, like happy place. She's gotten to with another person. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There's something, something in there. I agree with both of you that it is like kind of this early twenties stage of life to be in where you're like, I don't know what I want, but I'm willing to try a lot of things. And I guess there's only four people living in in the city with her. So she dates three of them and lives with the other one. I mean, like, I get that. You Like we've all, we've all been there. Like, like the thing that you want most is to like know what to do next is like, have a concrete plan of what to do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've more like more speaking out of experience than necessarily what she wants in this movie, but like, or to like know what to do next and like know that it's the right thing to do. I don't know. There's a, that kind of horrifying moment where you like spill out in out of college and you're like, well, hell now I have to like actually figure out what I'm going to do. Not just like on a day to day basis, but like 
I have to figure out some structure for my life, like ongoing uh, and not have other people tell like giving you structure and telling you how to do things. So like, you know, it can be kind of alarming about that. And like to find a sense of direction out of that can, is no small feat. I don't know that that's ever like articulated in the, in the movies as such as like, as her desire. And I also don't think like, let's be clear. I do think that's a very realistic thing to want. I don't think it's a very powerful thing to push behind as a character. Um, that's what makes it universal, but it doesn't make it very playable. I think there's also something there in like the college life transition where you kind of like rush into monogamous relationships mm-hmm. that this movie like explores a little bit where like, like she kissed Paul once and now he's like sleeping at her house every night yeah. and she's always around him. Oh God. And we yeah. see that happen like three times. And I think that's such a real thing in life too, where especially when you're kind of just first living on your own, you like jump into those things, but then mm-hmm. it's like, wow, like I kissed Paul two days ago and now for the rest of my life, every day he's going to be here talking to his agent in the morning. You know what I mean? Like, I think the movie is exploring that a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lot what she brushes up with, with both of the guys is like, I think the problem in a problem in both of those relationships is that they're just around each other too much. Mm-hmm. And for as much as they have to do all day, like they just sit at work if they had work to do, maybe they could focus on something else. It's it's really interesting saying that in context of like quarantine, because this feels like a movie that happened in quarantine. It does. Like they're just sitting around. They don't have anything to do. They feel stuck for like no reason. Yeah. I think read to my theory. That's because this movie probably was filmed in one room mm-hmm. with five actors and like, the only thing you can do in a room with five people is be like, well, who should I kiss next? <laughs> oh, man. Now we're going to move on to a classic segment. The listener will be quite familiar by now. MVP OTH. The MVP other than Hannah in this film. Mm-hmm. Kate, you said that you had answers, what you thought your answer was going to be before you watched oh, yeah, the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, before I watched the movie, I I some yeah, some of the segments that I knew were coming, I predicted what I would think. So I did predict the protagonist would be Hannah and that what she wanted would be to take the stairs. Um <laughs> Wade and I talked about that beforehand. And then my prediction for who I thought the MVP other than Hannah would be, not knowing any of the characters existed, I had an idea that this was probably gonna be a little bit of romantic comedy. There's like a heart on the poster. It's her like snuggled up to Mark Duplass on the cover of the movie. So I was like, there's going to be some element of romance here. So I'm going to pick my MVP OTH as who I always think is the best character in any rom-com, which is the main guy's first girlfriend before he ends up with the girl. That character is always so freaking funny She's like always a little ditzy and like kind of mean and just like so silly and has the most ridiculous gags. So I I picked my MVP OTH prediction was going to be Mark Duplass's first girlfriend before Hannah. That character doesn't exist, unfortunately. <laughs> so for me, it's the boss who gives the two girls weird <laughs> advice on how to answer the phone. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right, Wade, who's your MVP OTH? I don't know. I guess I'm going to go with Rye Rousseau Young. 
as the roommate. There are other performances in this movie that I think are as good as hers, but I think the fact that she is a constant for the movie, like she's the thing that is sort of like compelling and interesting throughout all of this movie's 83 minutes. And that in the first 10 minutes, she has like the worst performance I've ever seen anyone give on screen ever (laughs) as she like pretends to search for things in the kitchen. Emmett, who's your MVP OTH? Okay, well, this is difficult. Kate, when you said that bit about f- the first girlfriend of yeah. the of the main guy, that kind of makes Mike that character in this movie, doesn't it? In it does, some, in some yeah. way, right? Like, yeah. and and we all agreed that we would rather date Mike <laughs> than anybody else. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think that's interesting. one more point for mike on the dateability is that he's definitely the hottest of the three oh, guys oh yeah like by far the mm. listeners can't see but they're nodding a lot yeah they're not leaving me <laughs> on a limb with this one yeah given a stoic <laughs> eye squint <laughs> and nod <laughs> but i'm gonna say that i have to go with paul for this because <laughs> If it, if it weren't for Paul, this movie might be a movie that someone would recommend to someone. <laughs> but since Paul is in this movie, it will never get recommended to anyone. And therefore, he is doing the most work for this film by keeping people from watching it. Thank Whoa. you. Galaxy Brand it. Okay. Now I have one final segment that I want to go into before we we sign off for the evening. Um, I've compiled a, a short, a quick game for you. And the way the this game is going to work is I will ask a question. I think you both get to answer it. And then I'll tell you which of you got it right. But you'll alternate who goes first. Whatever. We're going to, we'll get loose. We'll get, we'll get wild. Yeah. Okay. The name of this game is Mumblecore or Mumble Rap, where I will read you I will read you two names and you will have to tell me which one is Mumblecore and which one is the name of a mumble rap album. Which one is the name of a Mumblecore film and which one is the name of a mumble rap album? I would just like to point out that one of us is literally in one of these industries and one of us is absolutely not. And we should point out that they're very separate arts. It's separated by about 10 years, just for the listener at home. For the listener. For the listener at home. Question number one. So much fun. Your sister's sister. Your sister's sister is Mumblecore. Um, so much fun is Mumble Rap. I'm trying to think of who it is because I know I have it downloaded on my iPhone. I'm picturing the album art right now. All right. Okay. So they both get it right. So that's uh one and one there. Who was it like? Oh no, I don't I don't I don't do any research on any of this. I just put I I, I did the, the least possible amount of work to make this game fun. <laughs> um <laughs> Okay, Wade, uh, you get the first first go this time. Okay, the names are Creep and just a single question mark. Oh, that's hard. That's really tough. I think Creep for Mumble Core would be like too on the nose. So I'm gonna go that Creep is the Mumble Rap album. I was also thinking that that just a question mark. It sounds more mumble core to me than mumble rap. Okay. You're both wrong. Ooh. Creep is the mumble core film and question mark is the album. All right. Question number three, Kate, it's back to you. Okay. Digging for fire 
Painting Pictures. Painting Pictures is album Digging for Fire is film. Yeah, I've seen Digging for Fire. So Digging for Fire is Mumblecore. All right, so you both get it right. You are neck and neck right now. Number four, Kate, over to you. Dying to Live, Medicine for Melancholy. Ooh, I think Dying to Live is core. Medicine for Mel- Melancholy is album. I think Dying to Live is mumble rap album. Okay. Wade gets one. All right. Pulling ahead. Baghead, Dog Walk. Uh, this is, again, where I know... I know in doing my research okay. that so maybe so maybe you should have okay. is it fair to yeah, have Kate go first? Yeah, let's just have, yeah, let's just have Kate go first every time. All right, Kate. I thought I was gonna get a freebie. Baghead album dog walk film. A baghead of film. Okay. No! All right. All right, Wade's pulling ahead. It is right now uh four to two. Up next, Barefoot Worlds. Mutual appreciation. Okay. Um, mutual appreciation film, Barefoot Worlds album. Yeah, Barefoot Worlds sounds more like the album. I don't know either of these. All right, you both get it. Okay, number seven, Kate. Good Intentions, Drinking Buddies. Good Intentions album, Drinking Buddies film. Yeah, Drinking Buddies is a, is also a film I have seen. Yeah, I realized once you talked to, or once it was in the show notes that that was probably going to be an easier one to to know about. But uh, uh, certainly a film that Kate has seen too, um, since it has Anna Kendrick in it. Oh, oh my god! Pitch Perfect performance every single time. Uh, uh, I didn't realize I was coming on this podcast to be abused. Kate, number eight, the Guatemalan handshake. Or Emergency Tsunami. Guatemalan Handshake album, Emergency Tsunami film. Uh, Emergency Tsunami album. I don't necessarily think that any of these films would have the budget to put a tsunami in. So that's what I'm going with. You were correct. (laughs) All right. We got two more here, but I do think that Wade has mounted an insurmountable lead. But we're going to continue nevertheless. So number nine, Daddy Long Legs or Daddy? (laughs) Daddy Long Legs album, Daddy Film. I agree. You're both wrong. (laughs) No way. Daddy Long Legs is the movie and Daddy is the mumble mumble rap album. Mm -hmm. Number 10, to bring it on back home, Kate. I'll cut you a deal. If you if you win this, it's double or nothing. You can you'll be worth. I win the whole. You'll thing. You'll win the whole thing if you get this question right, and you will get absolutely nothing except to say that you beat Wade at trivia on the first ever podcast to ever talk about Hannah takes the stairs, the Greta Gerwig right. two thousand seven vehicle. Uh, number question number ten. Heartbreak Kodak or Sun Don't Shine. Oh, that's hard. Heartbreak Kodak album, Sun Don't Shine film. Oh, that's hard. Sundome Shine sounds more like an album, but I know Kodak Black, so I'm wondering if that's if Heartbreak Kodak is like one of his albums. So I'm I'm gonna say the same. I'm gonna say Heartbreak Kodak album. Well, you were both right, but I did promise Kate that if she got this question right, she would win, despite Wade's several point lead. Unbelievable. So congratulations, Kate. I love this podcast. You have won the game. 
Thank you. You're welcome. So, Kate, now would be a great time to tell the audience as you as you are flushed from your victory. Uh, any plugs that you might have, any projects that you have coming up, any places people can find your work, your voice. Unfortunately, I did just delete my Twitter, which was maybe my most well-known source of content. I am working on like a very long-term project. It'll, um, it's like a year goal, the end of the year. Um, So I guess stay tuned for that. I don't know how you'll stay tuned because I'm off the internet, but I hopefully will get back on this podcast at some point in time and love to give an update then. Hell yeah. We can't wait to have you back for um, another Mumblecore classic, Sharknado. That's what I get for just like inviting myself back without being asked at all. <laughs> just telling the listeners, just so everyone knows I will be coming back. Do you do you have any final thoughts about the film? That I, I truly do not understand her sense of style at all. I live in Brooklyn and I still can't put together what she was trying to do. She had a lot of funky fun rings but then also like bermuda khaki shorts down to her knees that she would wear at the same time i i just don't understand how any of it goes together so that was another kind of like little beef i had with the movie and i do see people dressed very interestingly every day (laughs) that's my final thought we will talk a little bit next week about well, obviously, this whole series of what Greta goes on to do. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about what Joe Swanberg goes on to do because he's in our film next week. So I just wanted to call out that uh, Andrew Bojowski, the dreaded Paul, ends up direct writing and directing the film Support the Girls in 2018, which was like pretty well-known and beloved. It has Regina Hall in like a very celebrated performance. And Rai Russo-Young, who plays the roommate, goes on to direct The Sun is Also a Star for uh, Warner Brothers, like a big studio YA rom-com. Both of movies that I heard were really good in the year 2019. So it's like cool that some people went on from this moment of indie filmmaking and like also managed to break into like the current moment of indie filmmaking we have, Mm -hmm. which is clearly like pretty indebted to this original one, even if we like vastly prefer a 24 over this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, But I mean, made by the same people, right? I mean, Greta is making these movies we love and we're tracing back to see where she came from. Tracing back to see where Timothy Chalamet came from all the way since 2006. My final, final thought is that I just wanted to read Joe Swanberg's director's statement This is taken from the 2007 Hannah Takes the Stairs website. I value the trust of my collaborators more and more with each new project. It is a gift, and I treasure it. With Hannah Takes the Stairs, despite initial fears and hesitations, or perhaps because of them, many people whom I love and admire were willing to put their busy lives on hold for days and weeks to gather in Chicago and sleep on the floor with me in a rented apartment and make a movie. We shared ideas fears, loves, successes, and failures. We stayed up late. We danced. It was magical. I grew as a person just as much as I did as a filmmaker. I couldn't ask for anything more. This is a film that I really appreciate the process of more than the product. Like, I think that statement is so beautiful and like really makes me feel kind of like bad about like giving it so much, like such a hard time. And like not liking it, 
that doesn't make me like it. It doesn't like make the experience of watching it better, but it does like it softens my opinion of it somewhat. Yeah. These people, these people like got together and they made this thing and didn't exist before that. And they did it. And like, that's pretty cool. Like they did this for a tiny amount of money. It launched careers. It like was a trajectory for a lot of their careers. I don't know. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's like a cool, it's like a more cool is like a fossil of an artist's, a bunch of artists careers than it is is like something to go and watch if you want to watch a movie in these early joe swanberg movies it's not just greta i mean it's greta gerwig but it's also the duplass brothers mm-hmm. it's also Lena dunham it's also jake johnson like all of these people start their careers mm-hmm. in the joe swanberg movies so that's interesting yeah i mean how much bad theater do we see where people had like a great process making it right like so much Definitely. fun yeah yeah and how much like theater where you really like it and then you go and talk to them after and they're like oh it was the worst thing to make we were actively hostile against the director yeah yeah, for sure it makes me hungry to do like make more things again though like watching this and talking about it so that's cool you're ready to take the stairs ready to take the stairs (laughs) yeah maybe even the escalators okay so up next on this podcast which we are calling unforgettable in case you didn't remember next up we will be watching the greta gerwig classic nights and weekends join us next week directorial debut or directorial debut which everybody pretends was ladybird but we'll get the tea on that next week stay frosted everyone we love you Good night. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes this podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.